follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. This morning I am broadcasting from Vail, Colorado. Uh, where the uh, National Council of Investigation Security Services are hosting their conference. And today, my guest, as you know from the promotion, is Greg Hartley. He's an expert interrogator. First, though, before I introduce Greg, but hello, Greg. He's with us. Hi. Greg. How are you? Good. Thanks for, Thanks for being here. And you're, you're calling in from um, outside Storm of Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. So we're cross-country here. Exactly. Yeah. So, but first, before we get started, I need to give you the blast from the past question. Do you know the name of the detective in the early 1900s who worked for Pinkerton Detective Agency and who was known as the human lie detector? And I'll be giving the answer at the end of the show. And that research is thanks to Ben Harrell, the curator of PI Museum. So the title to the program this morning um, is Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, because that's what Greg does. He identifies people when they are deceptive. So do you know when someone's lying, and what are those objective signs, and would you like to build up your expertise? So Greg's just the expert to tell you how to do that. Let me just tell you a little bit about Greg. Greg Hartley graduated from U.S. Army's Interrogation School. He graduated from instructor qualification courses for anti-terrorism and principal protection, and the School for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, called SEER. Is, is that how you pronounce it, SEER? SEER, that's right. Okay. And then he served as a SEER instructor and operational interrogate, interrogation ex, um, support and expert to Desert Storm's Fifth Special Forces Group. So he's a skilled interrogator, and he trains many people. He's trained government agencies, private investigators, law firms, human resources people, all kinds of people to detect deception. He also consults with Fortune 500 companies, and he teaches what he calls extreme interpersonal skills in daily business applications. Sounds interesting. He's provided all kinds of interrogation and analysis for TV and print media, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Der Spiegel, the BBC. Uh, he had an um, uh, interrogation simulation for British television's torture, the Guantanamo Guidebook. On History Channel, We Can Make You Talk. And he 
contributed to Discovery Channel's Secrets of Interrogation. He is also unbelievable, his author of seven books, and when I first met him, he'd only written one, so he's been busy um, in the past few years, very busy. So, Greg, um, just tell us, please, how you um, got to the interrogation school and how that all happened and how you ended up becoming a specialist in this area. You know, oddly enough, I, it's purely an accident that I became an interrogator. I found that I was a very good interrogator once I stumbled into it, but I was stationed in Arlington Cemetery. They're based on one criteria, two criteria, that I was tall and thin, and that was the, <laughs> those are primary drivers. You look good in blues, so you work funerals. I spent two years there, and that was an honor to be in Arlington Cemetery burying American soldiers, American fallen soldiers. But at the end of that, it is a choice assignment, and you pretty much choose your next assignment. I took an aptitude test for language, and being a young, romantic kid in my 20s, I thought how cool it would be to speak a foreign language. And I took Arabic for two years, eight hours a day. At the end of that, of course, you have to pay the bills with the language. (laughs) So it's not that you're going to school for your own entertainment. I had to choose between being a voice intercept guy and an interrogator. Well, I understood what they do and knew that I'm a people person. I had no desire to listen to a radio all day. Mm -hmm. So... I chose interrogation, and the minute I stepped into interrogation, I knew I'd found where I fit. I went from there to SEER immediately to teach resistance to interrogation, and tying those pieces together was, for me, a godsend to understand how the process works even better. And then while I was interrogating people at SEER and teaching resistance, the Gulf War started, and I actually went and spent a few months interrogating prisoners and working operational support. So it tied everything together for me nicely. And in that process, I worked with psychologists and I started to learn a little bit of body language and had a passion for that. So I've investigated and discovered and created my own experiments to find a lot of information and learn as much as I possibly could. So you found that this was a talent that that you had innately, but what would make a person who's a good interrogator? What's a, what, are, what would be the... Innate abilities. They're they're the same things that make good people a good people person in any skill set, whether it's customer service or anything else. It's that intellectual curiosity to know why the person does what they do. It's intellectual curiosity to know more about a person, even if you don't like people. If you're interested enough to know why people do the things they do, it's that curiosity that helps. And then there are some good things that help you along the way. If you have a high white to gray matter ratio, meaning you can understand the the correlations between facts as well as the facts. I think that helps. Having the ability, as my friends used to say, having the gift of gab, being able to talk about nothing is a positive. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's always a plus. You know, if you can talk your way out of things or into things, that natural talent lends itself very well to interrogation because you have to keep up a facade that you intend everything you say. Well, Greg, after you got out of, tra- out of all this training and you actually started interrogating people, or inter- I guess you would interview somebody first and then interrogate? Well, the way it works, typically in interrogation, we think that all interrogations are like police interviews. Um, military intelligence interrogations, we don't care what the person did wrong or right because we don't prosecute. Someone else takes care of that if we find a criminal act. Okay. But our intent is to find actionable intelligence. So, for example, you have hostages and they're located in, in position X or Y. We want to know where the hostages are so we can get them. Prisoners, we can get them. We want to take out ammunition caches, that kind of thing. So our interrogation, usually we look at large masses of people and decide which can answer the questions for us. That's a screening process that we talk about. And once we screen, we categorize people into can fit the bill and will talk, can fit the bill and will not talk, can't fit the bill, basically, are three categories. 
and then subcategories of each, and you go after the people who will give you the most information in the shortest period of time. So it's a screening process with a very short interview and a very talented guy who can figure out whether the person is resistant or not, categorizing people for the less talented interrogators to go after information. Hmm, interesting. So do you remember the first person you ever interrogated? Yeah, I do. I can actually still see his face. Um, you know, lots of training interrogations, and when I say training, resistance to interrogation is the most harsh interrogation you'll ever do because we're teaching Americans what to do in the, in the captivity of, of our enemies. Of course. So the first, the first person I ever did with that, I can still see his face, too, and that's pretty savage. That's where waterboarding and all that come from. But I can still see the first Iraqi prisoner I touched. Um, the guy just was more than willing to talk to me. He knew that there was no benefit to him trying to resist, that if he cooperated with me, he would get more, you know, better treatment. Not that he would get bad treatment to start with, but he might get some favors. And that was exactly right. As soon as he gave me information, I gave him what he wanted, and he was out. Sent him right back to the rear. Because hmm. I was forward deployed, not a cage interrogator. So I was right along with special forces guys who were kicking doors open, and you pull guys out, you handcuff those guys, and I get to talk to them. Okay, so was that in Iraq at the time? That was actually in, in Kuwait. In Kuwait, Okay. Right, because we, were, we crossed over the berm from Saudi Arabia into Kuwait day one. We had a little contact. These guys were not, they had no will to fight, is the good news, and we overwhelmed them so they didn't fight very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as we were in, they started to surrender, or they would hole up in buildings and we'd go get them out. And Kuwait was just littered with pockets of resistance where people would build, they had these fortresses built in the corners of schools and those kinds of things. We, had, we took very little resistance. But as we grab people, of course, that's where you get the opportunity to interrogate. The first guy I met, I was with three Marines, and we were going to pick up some prisoners. Long story, I won't go into those details. But we pull over, and we're going through some clothes we found on the side of the road that belonged to those prisoners, and 20 armed guys came out of the house. Hmm. And the first thing you think is, okay, I'm dead. Right, of course. I started screaming in Arabic, drop your weapons, drop your weapons. And they were screaming back in Arabic, don't shoot, don't shoot. Oh. So suddenly they throw down their weapons, they walk forward, and we strip search and the whole works. And I interrogated for about five hours standing there, those 20 people. And I found some silkworm missiles that we blew up, found some other weapons caches, put the guys on the truck, got them out of there. But in that five hours, of course, it was pretty intense. The first few minutes were, were seriously intense because any mistake and no one there speaking Arabic and English, that could have been a catastrophe for one side or the other. No or both. kidding. And were you the only uh, interrogator or were there others? No, I was the only. Um, typically, Arabic-speaking interrogators, in those days, I think there were about 55 or 60 of us, because in the Army's infinite wisdom, it did not believe we needed Arabic speakers mm-hmm. back in those days. So they taught about, this is late 80s, of course, when the Russian threat was still big. Right. They taught about 200 Arabic speakers a year, and about 30 of those would go on to be interrogators. And of those, most would stay in the cage, hundreds of miles to the rear where we're sending prisoners. It's just that I was working for Special Forces Command, so I was lucky enough to get forward deployed. And I, every time they would stop me, I would say, hey, I was told I'd get forward deployed. And they kept moving me forward. So I worked with an ODA and with a B-team. A B-team is a support element. Wait a What's an ODA and, they, and a B-team? Well, an ODA is an Operational Detachment Alpha. It's what you always hear, the A-team. Okay. A-team, these are the guys that actually go kick doors in and take people out of buildings and that kind of thing. Um, or they are the guys who, who train foreign soldiers. And the B-team is more of a support element where you have all of your – um, supply and we have support elements okay. for communication, that kind of thing, medics. So, yeah, it was an interesting turn of events for me as a young guy 
changed forever how I thought of the military and forever how I thought of interrogation because I was not sitting in a cage. So how old were you at this point? 26, 27. Yeah, wow. And then who, would, who was your most difficult? <laughs> a woman. Really? Women are harder to interrogate for men than, than most men would ever imagine because your brains work very differently than ours. And any man who thinks that he can understand how a woman thinks does not spend enough time. <laughs> so it, it took me about 14 hours to get her to actually start talking. And I tried everything I knew. I just stumbled on it in the end. So that's interesting. What are the differences? Well, first of all, your brains are wired dramatically differently than ours. So, first of all, I, I think of men as making long-range plans and trying to stick to them. Think about directions. Here's a prime example. The reason a man doesn't stop and ask for directions is because his plan was right to start with. He's just going to follow it. But you, by nature, your brain is designed to make incremental change along the way. So you constantly check the route and make sure it's correct. The same thing is true in interrogation because men have a plan and they walk in. Once you break that plan that they're using to resist, it's difficult for them. But because women's brains flex more quickly, and there's actually a structural reason for it, but because your brains flex more quickly, it's very difficult for us to pull off as many tricks as we could with a man. And because you make that that binary hard decision, if it's A or B for the man, it's not that for you. It's A through D for you, and you, you make choices along the way. Let's come back to this, Greg. We need to take a, just a quick break. You're, ta- you're listening to Greg Hartley, expert interrogator. Be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Former military interrogator Greg Hartley an author of several books is with us today. And Greg was just telling us that men and women are wired differently. Go ahead with that, Greg, because I'm fascinated with it. Yeah, you know, you're right-left brains. We typically think of ourselves as right or left brain. But the most important part of that right-left brain theory is that we have a large mass of nerves between the two portions of the brain. And that's referred to as the corpus callosum. It's just a simple nerve bridge. But in women, studies say, and it depends on which study you look at, that it can be two to three times as dense as it is in men, which means a woman's brain is communicating right-left hemisphere very quickly in a way that men typically are thunk moving from one section to thunk moving to the other. Mm-hmm. That's interesting for me because it makes men think that women are emotional because you're mixing thought and feel or creativity and logic at the same time and you're flexing back and forth. It confuses us because we're really single path. We're the bull on the path. We like to move ahead. Mm-hmm. And men, just like Men and women alike are buried on a scale, so like a bell curve. Some women are less intuitive than other women, some more. And I count myself among the most intuitive men I've met. I count that a blessing, especially mm-hmm. in the business. And I pale by comparison to an average woman in terms of intuition because my brain is not wired for it. And you were telling me on the break that you typically, in those situations, would have a woman interrogator with you. Yeah, if you look at, I've done now a couple of, features for TV. I did um, one call, We Can Make You Talk, for the History Channel just before Abu Ghraib broke out, so you'll never see it on history again, But um, oh, yeah, because they feel very sensitive about that now. And then the other was UK, for UK4, I did a show called Torture the Guantanamo Guidebook, which is based on the Rumsfeld Rules of Interrogation, which is pretty intense. So in both of those, I chose to have a woman partner. In the second, in the torture show, we couldn't get the woman there. Something happened, and it failed. Really good woman interrogator I've known for years. But in the first, I always choose a woman because you see things I don't see. Your eyes are open in a different way than mine are. Like all people, we see things differently, but women's eyes are tuned to different things than men's. Ears are tuned to different things than men's. So I've always chosen, given, given an option, I've always chosen a woman as an, as an interrogation hmm. partner. Hmm. It's just very interesting. I actually, in business, when I go into business meetings and I see all these men sitting around the table, I ask them, are there no women in your meeting, in your company? And they say, well, yeah, we have women. Well, why don't you have one here? Are you stupid? I mean, their brains work different. They know the same things you know. Their brains work different. Why wouldn't you bring them in? I knew there was a reason I liked you, Greg. <laughs> well, great. I, I was smart enough to figure that out as a young guy. Yeah? <laughs> That's great. So um, you were telling me that the, the, 
person, um, well, first of all, we were going to talk about interrogation approaches. Sure. Non-coercive yep. interrogation. Yeah, and, and all of that came, Hunscharf, we were probably going to talk about. Yeah, Hunscharf was a, a Luftwaffe interrogator in World War II. He was actually a South African um, expatriate from Germany when the war broke out. He went back home for something, he was a business guy, and of course was conscripted to the military immediately. Long story about how he became an interrogator, kind of like me. He stumbled into something because of the language, and he became the singly most effective interrogator in the Luftwaffe at getting Americans to talk. Hmm. And the reason he did was because he used non-coercive techniques. In 1948, we hired him to come to the United States and create our current interrogation system. And that doesn't include things like waterboarding. That includes non-coercive <laughs> approaches we'll talk about in just a minute. But he also has, here's a bit of trivia for you. If you've ever been to Cinderella's Castle or Palace, I've never seen it, but in Disney World, and you've seen the mosaics on the wall, that's Hans Scharf's work, too. So the father of modern interrogation also painted Cinderella's Castle. That's fabulous. That's great. So he was an artist as well. Well, but that's this. That's that's putting pieces together. Yeah, you know, interesting. I think what he was it, overall was he was this brilliant man who looked for alternatives to what he was seeing around him. You have to think about World War II and how violent and aggressive interrogation could have been. Mm -hmm. And what he found was actually there's one story where he takes a guy up in a plane and gives him hands over the controls of the plane and says, "Hey, show me how you do this." And the guy does. So that takes trust and. I often say, you know, when I, looked, when I wrote the first book, when I wrote the How to Spot a Liar book, I wrote specifically about interrogation techniques. But it goes much further when you think about how interrogation works and what it preys on. It works on trust and hope. Just like everything in your daily life, mm -hmm. you're working down the axis of trust and hope. Building a relationship. Yep, exactly. And, and you, we all know, if, you ever, if you've ever done criminal investigation, and I know some private investigators get the option, depending on where you live in the country, but... All of the people who confess, confess because they build a relationship with the, with the investigating officer of trust. Mm -hmm. And the investigating officer, of course, preys on that and gets the person to feel relaxed enough to open up as if there are only two people in the world. Sure. Yeah. And so, so a, a coercive practice would be like, waterboarding. like waterboarding threats. Yeah, no, a good example, waterboarding is a, is a good example of what will happen. And people have asked me often, do I think waterboarding is effective? I've actually had the luxury in the past few years of arguing torture with Alan Dershowitz. He believes in torture warrants, and I think it's uncalled for for a nation to call for that. The only time I can imagine torture being effective is if I know, as an example, that there is a, a device that's going to go off, and I know it's going to be in one of two places, and I can't cover both. And I take you, and you don't know that I know, and I hold your head underwater, and you raise your head and give me the answer. You have to know something for that to be effective. And at some point, you dehumanize the interrogator and the nation that's doing it. I'm, I'm an anti-torture guy. Mm -hmm. I think that it's ineffective. I think that the most effective method is that trust and hope method. Mm -hmm. So coercion is anytime you make a person feel as though they're going to die, they're going to lose something precious, whatever you want to call it. Now, I will tell you that in interrogation, often using a fear-up approach as we move into approaches, I'm not going to tell the guy nothing's going to happen to him. Prime example. Sure. Okay. So Prime example. So First of all, I'm talking to guys, and they say, what's going to happen to me? I say, I'll take care of you. Well, what are the Kuwaitis going to do? I don't know. Just cooperate with me. You don't have to worry about that. Right. So your technique is non-coercive. Right. And, and you were telling me that uh, you used to think that based on the person who developed this technique that you were talking about, that the pressures generated 
from inside the source, and you've changed a little bit on that now. Yeah, I think it is generated from inside the source, but I will tell you this, that I think the 14 approaches are good mechanical levers for you to start with. But if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you think of everything stripped away except for what counts in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people go about their daily lives with two factors that matter, and that is the need to belong to a group and the need to differentiate within the group. And I typically, these days in business, I consider that to be the root of all of these approaches. The approaches are simply hammers and screwdrivers. The actual mechanics Mm -hmm. are managing through bonding and fracturing a person into a belonging or differentiating state. So what you're doing is you're satisfying their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you are now touching way past anything a conversation can do. I see. Interesting. So the 14 approaches are what? If we run through them, emotional, if I can remember all of them right off the top of my head. But the emotional ones are fear, love, and hate. Humans typically operate under three primary emotions, and and fear is an outcome. But love, hate, and greed are human emotions. So think about love, love of comrades. This is what we use in interrogation as a course of approach, love of comrades, love of country, love of money, love of self, love of whatever. So we prey on that. Mm -hmm. For example, would you like to see your family? If you do, we tie that to an incentive approach, which means giving someone something. I'll help you, you help me. So there's a love of. There's also the opposite of a love of approach, which is hate of, hate of an ethnic group, hate of a given person, hate of a rank group, you name it. And you play that off of them by saying, this guy told me X. And they say, well, that's a lie, and here's the truth. You're lying to them anyway when you say that. Mm-hmm. So the love of hate of peace is there. Incentive is where you give someone something. Fear up, and fear up comes in two flavors, fear up harsh and fear up mild. Fear up harsh is when you're screaming and yelling. The only reason you scream and yell is to take a person out of their thinking mind and into their reactive mind because fight or flight, which we probably should talk about, turns off the thinking frontal lobe and turns mm-hmm. on the reactive brain. Mm-hmm. and treats you, You're more like a cat than a human at that point. So that's what we prey on when we're going after someone. That's fear of harsh. They typically say you can't go back from fear of harsh, and people used to always laugh at me for an approach I call the Ike Turner approach. I would start off very stern. <laughs> the Ike Turner approach. <laughs> very, very relaxed. And when someone would say something stupid, I would throw furniture and stand up and say, why'd you make me do that? I really want to be your friend, you know, kind of like Ike Turner. Why'd you make me hit you, Tina? Right. Go about, go about the whole process. Amazing how effective it was because I made them feel guilty for making me lose my temper. Mm-hmm. And it's typical in abusive relationships every day, but it makes people feel like they're walking on eggshells. And that uncertainty causes them not to be able to think clearly. So that's an approach. Because uh, you, most... you, want, you want the person you're interrogating to want to please you. That's right. You want the person you're interrogating either to do one of two things. I prefer them to want to make me happy through a bonding mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. or you can make them feel as though there's everything that they want, everything they love is dependent upon it. So, for example, when you do the incentive, I'll let you call home, I'll let you write home, I'll let you do whatever, that approach is appealing to that love of, hate of. So we have fear up. And fear up mild is another approach that's used. If you think about today, it's being used way inappropriately in parts of the world. But the whole idea of either you talk to me or you talk to someone else, that's typical in the Middle East where ethnic divides are huge and where tribalism is big. You capture someone and you're with a coalition army and there's a hatred between the two ethnic groups and you say, you can talk to me or you can talk to him. That's fear apart. Right, right. Now, we, we really are not allowed to hand them over. And even if we do by Geneva Convention, if they're tortured, we're still liable. So, I mean, ultimately, threats like that are empty. And as we said at Sears School, where we actually did physically hit people and hold them underwater, 
the real power of a slap is in the draw. Once you make contact, you've wasted your opportunity. So mm-hmm. threats are usually hollow, right? You, we're not going to do something, so they're a waste of time. Um, if I run down the list, if I can remember, so I did love, love, hate, of, fear up, fear down, where I prey on a fear. You come in, your friends have been killed, and you've seen all kinds of horror. I, fear, I take a fear down approach where I give you some compassion, make you feel safe. Mm-hmm. You bond to me and want to talk. Typical kind of thing. Um, then, uh, if you have a list in front of you, you can remind yeah, me. It's been a while. You know, like one of them, uh, is like you already know the answer. You just want them to tell you oh, yeah. that you know yeah, the we answer know already. All. We know all. It's funny because we know all is one of the most complicated to get right. It's a knife's edge approach. I know 90% of the answers. and Or let's say I know 10% of the answers. Mm-hmm. And I walk right up to the edge of what I know with all of my allusion to the facts. So the person feels as though, well, he knows everything. Why bother? And then they just give you the information. The, the biggest problem with young interrogators and with people who are just learning this stuff is they make a mistake. They say something that's not true that they're guessing. Right. And the minute they do that, they go from we know all to we don't know anything, right? Right. So they lose. They lose their credibility. Um, yeah. So in, in different parts of the world, it's called something different. But the idea yeah, is we know all, and it helps to get people to feel as though it's useless. And that feeds right into the next one. That is futility. And futility is a why are you wasting your time? All of your friends have taught there's no reason for you to bother. Mm-hmm. The funniest thing in the world. People will always walk in and say resistance is futile. That's how they say it. And mm-hmm. I always say you're missing the point here. <laughs> you want to make them feel as though they're alone, as though they're standing against the world for no they reason. They have nowhere to turn. That's right. That's futility. Yeah. And when you get to that point, that actually works a lot in law enforcement because you're trapped. We know everything. All of those work together, which ties to something called orchestration. Most of these approaches typically do not work alone. We work mm-hmm. in orchestration. So the good cop, bad cop, for example. The good cop, bad cop is a threat or a fear up by one person and a fear down by another. It works mm-hmm. wonderfully. You know, I, if, you, if you remember what I look like, I have a pretty good overhanging forehead, which always put me in the threat role. And bringing a woman in always gave a good relief role. If I had that option, I could shout, look like I was angry. Yeah. And she could come in and push me to the side and take control. Yeah. Worked wonderfully. It's a team sport. And then uh, repetition is an important component, yeah, repetition correct? works wonderfully. We use a lot of things. We use repeat questions as well. Repeat questions are nothing more than rewording and asking in a different direction. But repetition is asking the same question over and over and over until the person responds. There's a, a variation on that called rapid fire where you and I might stand on either side and go at the person, bam, 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 until they get frustrated because we're not letting them answer and shout something out. So they're related. The Brits use a version of repetition they call monotonous, which I find amusing. And they simply sit and say, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? With a guy who's very tired and as he passes out, then they get to, what's your unit? They know his unit already. And it's a version of repetition along with we know all. When he passes out, they say, thank you for telling me that. Now, what's your mission? What's your mission? And the guy gets to the point, he starts to question his own sanity. Oh, I fell asleep, and I must have said something in my sleep. He just gives up and starts talking. Right. All right. Let's hold it there. We're going to take another break. Um, You're listening to Greg Hartley talk about how to interrogate. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. If you want to learn more about identifying deception, you really need to buy Greg Hartley's books. He's written How to Spot a Liar. I can read you like a book, The Body Language Handbook, and there's what are the others that you've written? Um, I had, oddly enough, had one dating book for women called Date Decoder, and I had okay. the rest were pretty serious. Uh, get people to do what you want. Um, how to be an expert on anything in two hours, and then most recently a book called The Most Dangerous Business Book You'll Ever Read. And that, what you were saying, was a, a just really uh, a fun-to-write book. Yeah, it was fun. All I did was take each chapter from things I've learned from working with hostage negotiators, profilers, etc. Well, I was just telling you on the break, as I, I think it's just um, gr- really great that you've been able to uh, transcend your military interrogation background into something that applies a, a, a positive 
application to business environment. And that's uh, really, I mean, I think that's what's needed with um, a lot of employee misconduct, for example, that goes on today. You know, people have a hard time compartmentalizing and not hating the person for whatever the misconduct is and keeping it clean and to the point. And I often say, for managers, you have to learn to be like an interrogator and to compartmentalize the issue from the person. Otherwise, you're going to be destructive to the person. And the problem is you get wrapped up in the dance. If you get wrapped up in that whole emotional dance, you can't be objective. Well, and if you get wrapped up in your own ego, it's not going to work either. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and, and all of Maslow's hierarchy is at work in both people involved in the investigation, so you right. have to be cautious. Yeah. So you were talking about um, the direct approach. That you're, what it, Define the direct D- approach to me. Direct, and before this war on terror, we found that direct worked on 90% of the people, and I have a whole theory. I, it took me a chapter to explain, but I have a whole theory as to why that worked. In 90% of the population in wars between nations, nation-states, we have found that 90% break on direct. We simply ask a question and they answer it. It's because they feel like a failure because they failed all of the don't, you know, don't surrender, fight to the last drop of your blood, all of that yeah. thing that soldiers are taught from the time they're born. All of that, like I said before, men are binary. Either I'm successful or I'm a failure. There's no, no variation in it. So when they're captured, they're a failure, and we prey on that. So a direct says, tell me what you were doing, and they do. Mm-hmm. Because they're not, they're really not expecting to do that. They're not expecting to be approached in that direct fashion. You know, for all the movies they've watched, they've seen people slapping each other around and that interrogation. They have no idea that there's a huge amount of psychology playing in, and that we're trained to think like that. They they think we all are savages, and that we're all going to beat them up, and we're going to use a bright light and a rubber hose. You know, the age-old thing, right, third degree right. in the Chicago area. But so when we walk in and we're friendly, it's so difficult to identify us as the enemy. So they talk to us. Plus, mm-hmm. like in my case, if you have to remember, I'm six foot tall, redheaded, and blue-eyed. Right. And when I walk in and start speaking Arabic, and I'm the first American they've seen who speaks Arabic, it's off-putting very quickly. For sure. It worked very effectively in the first couple. Yeah, for sure. And then, then you go to um, what you call the futility approach. Yeah, futility is that one, you know, there's no hope for you. You're in a bind. There's nothing you can do. I'll throw you a rope. And we tie that together very effectively with John Reed's minimizing approach so that when you're using minimizing and saying what you did is not that bad, but you're in a bind and I, I'm the only person who can help you, often people fall for that one very quickly. And you're talking about the Reed technique of interview and exactly. interrogation. Yeah. So if we use Reed's technique of minimizing while using futility and all of that tied together, it's amazing how effective that is. And then then don't you also tie that, tie that in with the incentive approach? Yeah, you know, incentive can be simple, Every, anything from a cigarette to a phone call home to something very complex. People often want something odd because they need to assuage their guilt for killing or whatever it is they, they have when you're actually in a combat situation. It, it, people are so different and people are so complex that the incentive is something you have to fish out of the person. It takes a little while to figure out what it is. A lot of times, though, it's just tobacco. In, right, in the part of right. the world I travel, tobacco is still pretty common. I see. Interesting. And then you also tie that in with the emotional approach. Yeah, and that was the love-hate-greed piece we were talking about. So all those tie together. Okay. Interestingly, the, pe- the reason most of these work, Francie, is because our, our brain has evolved just like we have. So if you think in terms of the lizard brain or the, the reptilian brain, it's there to keep mm-hmm. us breathing and breeding, and that's it. The mammalian brain is there to give us emotion and response. So think of a cat. Think of a 
a jaguar or something like that. They respond quickly. Cat-like reflexes, you never hear anybody say lizard-like reflexes, right? So right. move forward. The brain evolves. And then we get to that grand portion of the brain, the frontal cortex, that makes us human. It gives us the ability to think through processes, to use language, to do all of that. Well, what we know is in fight or flight, as adrenaline kicks in, a little bitty, a little bitty organ in the brain called the amygdala kicks in, causes the adrenal cortex to kick in and dump all kinds of stress hormones in your system. We used to believe that that was caused and that we, we would, our normal state was the rested state. We now believe that our normal state as human beings is the aroused fight or flight state and that we have a break on is the reason it comes on so quickly. When that happens, we dump tremendous amounts of adrenaline in our system. It routes muscle, I'm sorry, routes blood to muscles away from unimportant things like skin, away from unimportant things like sex organs, away from unimportant things like digestive system. So what it does is prepares you to fight. It takes blood away from vulnerable areas and puts it to places that matter. It ramps up your respiration to put more oxygen into your blood. Mm-hmm. And as part of that process, it also turns off your thinking brain. It takes blood away from all the mucous membranes. Right. You can see symptoms of it outside. You can see the dry mouth that we typically associate with lying, the blinking eyes we typically associate with lying. Those are stress signs, not necessarily lies, but stress signs, because you've turned off the reproductive and digestive systems. You see the pupils dilate to get more information, more of a good thing. Those are all signs the brain is turning off, and that reactive brain is in place. So all these approaches then are preying on that reactive brain. We say something, they say something. And you know, if you've ever been in an argument with somebody you're involved with, Mm -hmm. you've been in exactly that situation. You say something, and you really didn't mean to say it, it's just a reaction. Okay, and then when you you talk about pride and ego, where you you compliment them on one hand to build them up, or then you you are critical and, and the other way to tear them down. Yeah, so for example, a pride and ego up works really well. They used to tell us it works really well on stupid people. I disagree. It works really well on insecure people, narcissistic people, for example, like Saddam Hussein it worked well on. But if you use the approach, you're after building them up and saying, someone as smart as you must surely be higher ranked than you are. No, you don't understand. And what happens, you create a, a crack in the facade. They tell you why they're aggravated, and you play on hate of or that. If a person is narcissistic and you pound them down, for example, with Saddam Hussein, you go into his fan club, you tell him how, how impressed you are to meet him, wada, 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 and you start telling him how stupid he was when you're probably going to go down. What an idiot. You're just a thug. He starts telling you, I'm the national hero, and mm-hmm. here's why, and there are things I've done that you don't know about to build himself back up. Right. So he educates you on who he is, and he tells you along the way information that helps you to break him. Well, and, and I was kind of interested in some of the additional approaches that you might employ. And, I, and the rapid-fire one, I would have think you're really good at because you talk really fast. Yeah, I have to slow down when I'm on the radio. So I've actually slowed down today. But I do talk really fast. It's funny because, you know, for many years I was in the military and stationed in other places with this little bit of southern accent and a whole lot of speed. It's an odd mixture. I get that all the time where I live in Atlanta. Where are you from here? What are you talking about? Where? You can't be from the south. (laughs) And then you talked about the silent approach where I guess you just, what, Silent approach is, oddly enough, I think it's the one thing everybody listening, regardless of what you do, needs to learn. Silence is a wonderful tool. When you're listening to people, your natural tendency is to want to fill in the blanks. Don't. Be quiet. Listen to what they have to say. And uncomfortable silence forces people to look for something to say next. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they're not as protected when they do that. Great. And then change of scene is when you give them a cigarette break or... 
Yeah, or or you we we pretend to be someone else. There's an old you you can never tell what an interrogator really is because we look like anything we want to, with two exceptions: clergy or medical. Everything else we can pretend to be. We can pretend to be a government guy. We can pretend to be, you know, the the person from recreation services. We can pretend to be the local mm-hmm. clown. We can, you name it. We can pretend to be anything we want within the military. Anything we want. We cannot pretend to be medical people and cannot pretend to be clergy. Interesting. That's great. So, um, what what um would you get what information would you give to our listeners who may be interested in developing better interviewing techniques in a private environment or, or a public environment without being well, the, in the military? The first thing is if you want to be a good interviewer, you have to forget or you have to turn off all of that same reaction that we were just talking about from fight or flight. If you get caught up in the dance, and this is what I was saying to you a couple of minutes ago, Francie, if you get caught up in the dance and your ego gets involved and you get into a Maslow's hierarchy issue where you're working up or down the ladder, mm-hmm. you can't be objective. You can't be intelligent. What I'm after is turning off your thinking brain to respond in a way that's programmed deep in the core of your being. What you need to learn to do when you're going to be a good interviewer is not to allow that to happen to yourself. It happens all the time. Young interrogators get caught up in the situation and ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. We have to pull them out of the room because they can't make a conscious, intelligent decision. Well, and you talk about establishing a baseline. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, baseline, I, 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 if you think about human be- beings today, we use really five pieces of body language that are core. And those are gesture, which is a universally accepted piece of information that everyone in the, in the room or everyone in the conversation understands. Next is an adapter. It's what you do to release nervous energy, stroking your ear, playing with your hair. Those can be different from man to woman and different from any individual, mm-hmm. but it's releasing nervous energy. There's barriering, which is putting something between you and the other person. Releasing nervous energy means I need control over my environment. Barriering means I need more space. So you put a bag between you and someone else. I often see it in dating situations where a guy's out on the first date with a woman, and she puts her bag on the table between them. And I always look and say, just go home. That was way for your trip because he's, he blocked out, right? So as you see that barriering, it simply means I need space. Regulating is the way I control conversation. So if I drag my finger across my throat, you know it means, okay, we need to wrap up. Or if I roll my finger forward, it means faster, right? So regulating, you can see that. And then finally, illustrating is what we do to punctuate our thoughts. So my hands are going while I'm talking to you, even though you can't see them. We look for what's normal. Look for normal cadence, normal pitch of voice, normal choice of words, normal amounts of barriering, normal amounts of ear stroking, hair touching that. Mm-hmm. And then when we apply stress or we think someone's lying, we look for deviations because as they get stressed, all of that rises. So the barriering will go up to protect themselves and give them space. I actually yesterday was on Bloomberg talking about Bernanke. And the one thing that was odd to me about him in the press conference was that he barriered a lot. He crossed his body a lot. Hmm. It tells you he feels uncomfortable. There's fight or flight kicking in. So you look for the deviation. That's a protective measure? Uh, Yes. And what you're doing, what we always say, Francie, is when you get to that point and you see a protective measure like that go up to give him space, we stop interviewing about everything except for where we saw deviation. We go into micro-interview. Okay. Interesting. All right. And you're looking for behaviors that are specifically associated with whatever you're talking about. Right. So, So, for example, if I'm rattling along and his body language is fluid and moving, and suddenly something changes as he says, and then, for example, 
I'm interested because when he says and then, people lie in four ways typically. Number one is they make up something from blank cloth. Number two is they omit things, so commission and omission. And then the last two are transference or embellishment, which means I take details from your life to create my own, or I stretch the truth. The fish was 14 inches long instead of four. So if you know that, you know what kinds of verbal cues to look for. And you look for physical and verbal cues at the same time that indicate you need to break into a micro interview. Okay. We need to take one more break, Greg. We'll yeah. be right back. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday. Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back here with Greg Hartley talking about deception and interrogation and all those kinds of things. But first, before we get back to Greg, I want to give you the answer to the blast from the past question. And the question is, or was, I gave it to you at the beginning of the program, do you know the name of the detective in the early 1900s who worked for Pinkerton Detective Agency who was known as a human lie detector? And the answer is James McParland. He was the human lie detector. And that is exactly the area that Greg has chosen to develop expertise in. Um, so I wanted to thank, uh, thank Ben Harold. He did the research on this. Ben Harold is the curator of PI Museum. And if you want to support PI Museum and all of the artifacts associated with in the PI Museum collection, go to www.pimuseum.com. Ben is actually going to be on the show next week to tell you more about his amazing collection and his PI Museum on Wheels that he's getting ready to launch to travel across the country. I also want to mention our featured sponsor, which is Brownyard Programs Insurance, providing insurance for private investigators and security professionals at a great competitive rate. So back to Greg. Um, I know we're going to have to wrap up here quickly, but I'm kind of interested, Greg, in what you would say are bad questions for an interrogator. Well, you know, typically when we talk about questions for interrogators, we're after short-term information, getting it as quickly as possible. So you don't lead, just like you wouldn't in a law investigation or anything else. You would not say, you are not going to do X, are you? You would not give them a negative question like that. You, know, you wouldn't say, are you not, because that's confusing. You don't want to give them a compound question with multiple answers. Are you going to the store or to the zoo? Because that allows them to play with you. All resistance to interrogation is built on the ability to confuse the interrogator. If you confuse yourself, you make it easier for your person to resist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So compound questions, that makes sense, because you're yeah. asking two questions at once. Are, are you not going to the store? That's a negative question. Right. That's a confusing question. A leading question is, you don't want to do this, do you? You know, those are mm-hmm. leading questions. You had someone down the direction, or you project into the question some way the answer is. I always say a kid walking into a store saying, y'all don't need no help, do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that that Southern coming out? I'm just that wondering. is. That is. <laughs> okay. So what about, uh, so, so you said leading, negative, compound, or vague questions? Yeah, are all vague, vague, you don't give them enough information. What were you doing? What were you doing when? Right. So that's, that's too complex a question. So what, when we're asking questions as an interrogator, we're after information. And source leads come out of conversation, meaning the person will say something that allows you to take that conversation in a new direction. If you don't allow them to give you open-ended questions, open-ended answers, then you can't follow their train of thought. If you ask them a yes and no question, you're allowing them not to speak, and when they speak, they believe information. Okay, so good questions would then be? Well, what? good questions are direct. You ask the question you want. They are clear and concise, and you run down a list. I mean, there, we, I could give you a long list of questions we could run through, just like we did through approaches, but we're, we're, we won't have enough time. But those questions need to be clear, easy to understand. And I always say in the source's style. So if a person is driven by time and they want to talk in terms of at 7.05, build your question that way. Put it in a way they understand. If they're big, high-level, nebulous responders, big chunkers, ask questions in big chunk style and then break it down one question at a time. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And so I guess the basic who, what, how, where, when. Sure, yeah. The, the basic interrogatives are always good. Who, what, when, where, why, what else. And then, huh, ultimately, if you don't understand what they're saying, just ask for clarification. What <laughs> else is the most powerful question you'll ever walk away from? You'll get more information than anything else before you walk away. The last thing I always say to a source, what else can you tell me? Because people hold on to a little nugget of information for people they like, and they'll share it with you because it makes them feel special. Well, and it seems to me that asking a question that's too specific might get you into trouble, too. It does because it allows the person to say exactly what you want, what they want to. We've all been there. When you, If you're in a situation where a person is trying to lie to you and you ask them the wrong question, they can be deceptive, not lie. And there's a difference between deception and lying. A person can be openly deceptive and not lie. You didn't ask me where I was at last Tuesday. I, right. You know, I thought you understood that. Well, no, you said this Tuesday. And the problem becomes that you're narrowing their opportunities, and you're giving them a broader chance to lie by not saying anything. Yeah. People, people lie very effectively by not answering questions. Yeah, well, we call that what? Lying by omission, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Omission. Yeah. And one of the things, there's a guy named Jack Schaefer who's a very well-known FBI profiler, and one of his things, I think he built a doctoral thesis on the words and then, something he calls verbal bridging, but we all understand. If I say I went to my ex-wife's house and then I left and they found her body, well, then we want to know what happened. Wait a minute. Yeah. What happened yeah. in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, then, and then I backed over her, right? So, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yeah. So people omit by using verbal bridges. Anytime you hear those kinds of words, it, I'm not saying they're always lying, but it is a prime opportunity for a lie. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I will give you one last thing. Omission, okay. commission, embellishment all have their weaknesses. So commission... Wait, say that again. Oh, commission... Mm-hmm. Omission and embellishment all have their weaknesses. Okay. So a lie of commission, where you make something up out of plain cloth, takes a whole lot of details. And people typically don't think up all those details. It's like a photo that's out of place in your album. By omission, all you have to do is forward and backward pass, and you got it. Take the story forward and backward. And then the last one, make it a team lie, because I'll have to create a team. Great, Greg. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been just a delightful guest. And I know our listeners have enjoyed listening to you talk. And uh, for our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, Tune in next week while we declassify more real stories from real private investigators. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.